Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, you know, these past couple of weeks, I've had an opportunity to do a lot with the Army, including go back to Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, where I was able to work with several other Army survivors, looking at the benefits process, the casualty process. And one of them that I met just barely a few days ago is Melissa Ricci, and she is on the line with us this morning. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be invited. Yeah, no, we're really looking forward to hearing your story. Melissa is a surviving spouse of Army Specialist Alexander Rosa Jr., who was killed in Iraq May 25th of 2007. Now, all of us around town know end of May is, of course, Memorial Day. And Melissa, we were talking offline about how poignant it is that you lost your husband in the service to our country near such a significant day. And we're just grateful that you would join us as that anniversary comes back year after year after year. And tell us a little bit about him, about yourself, about your daughter. But first, can you back up and just give us the backstory? Because you yourself are also a veteran of the United States Army. How and when did you join the Army? How and when did your husband, when did you meet? Can you just kind of introduce you two to all of us? Yes, happy to do that. So I joined the Army in 2002. It's been a while since I've thought about that. But I joined as a paralegal specialist and had a great experience. I really enjoyed serving. I found myself in college prior to that, and I did not feel like it was really my right fit. I wanted more. I wanted to be able to work and travel and do school and I found that in the Army and then also with the benefit of the GI Bill for graduate school. So I was sold and willing (laughs) to do whatever I could. And I already was very service oriented. We were raised doing mission trips and service work in our local community. So it was already a part of my orientation to life anyway. So once I had the opportunity to serve and to find what I was looking for as I grew into my adult self, I signed up. I enlisted And uh, I had a great experience. I was in Tokyo and uh, Afghanistan and then um, finished my military service by serving with the uh, 3rd Infantry Division in Fort Stewart, Georgia. And that's where I met Alex. He was a military police investigator with uh, 385th Military Police Battalion. And I had become their paralegal. So we were actually neighbors in the barracks. (laughs) And. Yeah, so we met, he, got, he actually, we met when he had come back from 
Iraq. He just had a very dynamic personality. He's really clever, really fun. He's from Brooklyn. And he joined the service because his father had been in the reserves. And he really also was a very service-oriented person. It's, I think, a theme in uh Oh, for well, people I think who, it would, who enlist. It would have to be, especially to have dual military. I was married to a soldier. I wasn't a soldier myself. That's a lot of service. That's a lot of great opportunity, but that's a lot required for both of you. Did you date a long time, a short time? Did you know right away that this was going to be your someone? Those are great questions. So we had roughly a year and a half between deployments. And between deciding to date and his deployments, he arrived home in January and then left the next, or no, actually, he didn't even have a full year. Actually, I don't know. My, it's been a while. I haven't really thought yeah, about this. Yeah, this is a long time but ago. We met 16 years ago, almost 17 years ago. And so um, we met between his deployments to Iraq. And then uh, we kind of, knew like we actually just had a great synergy he was a a lot of fun together and what really was special to me was the way we were able to just so naturally and easily hold space for one another it was a very like I said synergistic um, relationship and yeah so we had really quickly discussed pretty much our life we'd set a life plan within (laughs) six months we were like okay this is what we're doing and how it's going to work because he wanted to stay home um, he actually wanted to become a teacher and awesome. be a stay-at-home dad. Be, I mean, not stay at home, but be with the kids, be very oriented to raising children, and which worked well because I wanted to continue serving but going into the United Nations and uh, working to solicit aid as a civil affairs officer, going boots on the ground and asking for what that specific area needed, asking from the UN, and therefore they could ask from countries and other allies. So it was a perfect fit for us. And um, yeah, we just, I had actually was really excited about our future, but then we ended up a little bit out of order, which I feel like it was my first real test in resilience was the fact that our plans were not falling in place in the sense that he was planning to deploy to Iraq. I had extended voluntarily to deploy back to Afghanistan and we planned to get out around the same time, get out of the army around the same time. And then our daughter decided to grace us with her presence. And it it was really my, like I said, my first exercise in, uh, you know, adapting to the unexpected. It was essentially the expected, but out of order. Yeah. I love (laughs) how you say that. And how often does life happen out of order? Like maybe you knew you wanted a family and you had military service and now maybe the, the things are ordered. So I'm curious, so you did not deploy to Afghanistan at that time. You stayed home and had the baby, I'm guessing. I did not. He was a pretty agile person also, I'd say, like, adoptive. But I like the word agile better. Okay. So we had a good plan, and we knew we could still do it. It just was not going to happen exactly the way we had planned it. So I left the military, and we were at Fort Stewart, so I went back to Atlanta, where I'm from, to wait for him to come back. And so... We still had our plan, and we just had to tweak a few parts, and we were still moving forward. It was really a great time you know, to have someone to share that, right, to have the ability to quickly pivot and, and have a good attitude. He really had a great attitude about it is disappointing when things don't go the way you want them to, but we were really a great team with that.
Well, and I um, love that you, I mean, that highlights the resilience, not just of an individual, but the resilience in a relationship and how when you have that, you call it the synergy, that agility, that resilience can make it so much easier to say, okay, this didn't look like exactly we thought it would, but we're going to take it head on and not get bogged down in what went wrong or what didn't work. And I love that. That shows that, again, that kind of resilience in your relationship. I agree. And I feel like the ability to share that is, I think, key because it really made a hard time fun. It was still fun because we still had the same orientation and the change did not knock us out of alignment. And that was really great. It was really uh, special to me. And then, so he deployed the day after Thanksgiving, actually, which was not easy, but he was with, I had worked with his battalion. So I was familiar with his commander. I was close to the commander and everyone was really committed to making sure Alex was home when our daughter was born. And he was. So when was she born? I'm just trying. I'm just trying to get a timeline in my head. So he left late November. He left late November. What year are we talking about? In 2006. Okay. And when was she born? In April of 2007. April 20th, 2007. Okay. And he did make it home. They were able to send him home on leave to see the baby. He did. It was, oh, it was great. He, he came home. Eric Phillips, he's uh, still serving, but a great leader, just a great guy all around. And he was really committed to making sure Alex came home. Um, he's a father also. And and Alex was there. So we, it was a really fun time. Yeah, it was really special and meaningful. Um, just I'll get back to when we talk about resilience, why I think those relationships matter, those meaningful relationships. Yeah. But the he came home and we were able to close on our starter home and had Ellie a few days later. And he was there for her first two weeks of her life, which I was very grateful for <laughs> because he was really, truly the kid person. If you were to label one of us <laughs> as the person in the oh. relationship who was more kid oriented. And it was really special in the end. I always look at that time as uh, really a gift. I feel um, sorry, it's a little emotional for me, but I feel like it's a gift that I was able to give someone I loved. Like if, so even if he only had what he wanted for a few weeks, like I'm so grateful that he experienced that. Oh, Melissa. Um, yeah. Having a family. Yeah. And so That is so yeah. beautiful. I'm just picturing this sweet reunion. You're both young. You have this brand newborn baby. He's halfway through a deployment. After the couple of weeks, you send him back on a plane not knowing what's coming next. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back into May of 2007. We'll be right back. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so, Melissa, Michelle and I have both given birth. We've both had a couple of weeks after giving birth, and we both know that a couple of weeks after giving birth, you're not really quite back to where you were before you were pregnant and gave birth. So 
Walk us through no. <laughs> your beautiful baby's born in April. Your husband's home for a couple of weeks. He goes back to the rest of his deployment. I'm sure just wonderfully filled with the the joy of fatherhood and this family. And you have this great synergy. And now you have this little person that you've created together. Can you tell us the tragedy that happens the following month? I mean, really just weeks later, right? Uh, yeah, it truly was. So we brought him back to the airport to redeploy on May 1st. And I'll never forget that day. It was hard and there was just a bit of a feeling in the air. I almost feel like life has some foreshadowing. I have a literature background and I always think about how art and life replicate one another. They definitely mirror one another. And so uh, that was an interesting day with a lot of um, kind of interesting feeling. And he was back at work by the uh, last week in May I guess it's important to note was he, they tried to keep him at a desk job <laughs> to keep him safe. Like every, you know, we, cause he's this we're, brand new we're, daddy. Was, yeah, exactly. And they all knew me because I worked with everyone and um, they kept trying to keep him, you know, out of uh, the action, but he felt very dedicated to serve and dedicated to his soldiers. And he wanted to be serving, which is why he was there. And so he actually transitioned back into a role as the commander's gunner. So our commander, or his commander at the time, uh, Eric, he, he wanted to keep him close. <laughs> so he had given him the role as the gunner. And uh, that actually, um, yeah, so it didn't work out so well, obviously. But with yeah. the day that he passed away, it was his first week back at work. And they had a long day, and they were actually on their way home. And they everyone was pretty much dehydrated. They didn't have enough IV bags and Alex being Alex, he made sure the commander's driver um, received the IV, not him because that's just who he was. He, He always put anyone under him first and even beside him or above him. It was, he was essentially just really giving person. Like he wanted to make sure everyone was taken care of first. So he gave his, Ivy to um, the driver and then had the driver go into the gunner position because he was not doing so well. Like so many of them weren't after a long day in the Iraqi heat with, um, from what I understand, some pretty uh, intense activity that day. And so on their way home, Alex is actually driving and they hit an IED and he was the only one who died that day because I'm close with everyone. I am pretty well oriented to what happened. And, and, you know, the commander, uh, it was a hard experience for all three of them, but, uh, the kid who we had put in his position ended up with just two broken legs and the commander had a concussion and actually it was pretty hard. He had a concussion and so he could not see and was, um, Uh, trying to orient to what happened as a commander and unable to, uh, it was a really hard experience for him also. And um, Alex had been ejected from the Humvee and he, he lost his legs from the knee. Essentially like, it's very interesting to me. I'm sorry if this is too much. No, (laughs) it's okay. Okay. He, so it was from his knees down and the rest of him was essentially fine. And, um, you know, he was dehydrated and it was a lot more than his 
body could handle. I think he just went straight into shock. And so that was really it. They, um, they, uh, I, I was still very disoriented <laughs> going back to having just had a baby. <laughs> yeah. so I was freshly out of the army, had just bought our first starter home and had my first child. And I was already in a state of shock, which I do attribute to like being a buffer. <laughs> yeah. It kind of helped I agree. Uh, me digest the information because I was already disoriented. There was not much more you could do to throw me off, essentially. Right. I, uh, so, yeah, Ellie was a, just over a month old. And that morning, the um, gentleman came to my front door and Actually, honestly, it was pretty comical because I had been in the military. So my first thought was they were there for me. I was, oh, gosh, oh. what did I do? They're, they're saying, you can't leave. Actually, come back. Bring your baby. We're going. Totally. I, I just thought, oh, what? what is this? And is there something I missed? An email? or like yeah, what is, Some you, paperwork you, know, like, you didn't what process? Happened? Oh, exactly. I was uh, near Fort McPherson at the time. So I thought, well, I don't really understand what's going on here. But yeah. um Luckily, my mother was there and she was visiting and they, yeah, they just gave us the news. And I just remember everything became silent and just, I essentially, I thought I couldn't, well, I guess I say I couldn't be more in shock than I was already after having a new baby, but I I was, I remember like really losing my senses, I guess is the best way to describe it and just being there with them as they explained the situation. It sounds like it's uh, almost one of those surreal moments where you kind of feel like you're outside your body. Like, Oh, definitely happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. Everything paused inside of me and it felt like outside of me. And I guess I just really needed to digest what was happening. And yeah, it's just really, um, I, me, a defining moment in my life. I'll say for sure. Melissa, can but you tell the, us? Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to say, can you tell us what is that first week or two or month or so look like? I mean, I'm just picturing myself with a brand new baby and how exhausting that is physically, emotionally. Your body's kind of already out of whack. Like you said, you're kind of already in a tailspin. Now you get this mm-hmm. news that doesn't even feel possible or real. You've got a brand newborn. You've got a funeral it's a combat death. So I imagine the media, the community, you're still pretty early into this 20 year global war on terrorism, you know, at at that time. Can you even just give us maybe a couple memories or anything that stands out over that very initial time? Who was there? What happened? And what was that like for you and your very newborn daughter? Yeah. So I would start with my first thought was to orient myself. And I, immediately grounded in the fact that, well, we signed up to serve our country and we knew the risk. And on top of that, important to me was that I did not know what the person who created that roadside bomb or the person who potentially buried it or or anyone in that line of, I guess, causal effect, I immediately knew I needed to release a sense of blame and knowing that I do not know these people. I cannot judge these people. I have no idea what happened to them or their families before or or what 
it was that caused them to feel that this was the right thing to do. I felt I had to immediately release that and understand that we're all having our own experiences and I just not creating judgment. It was critical to me as a first step. And, and I, I remember, um, just pausing actually within the first week in my living room and and thinking like, okay, like this is my first step. I just have to release this because they could easily feel animosity toward me and the things we've done. So, and that for me was a very powerful first step. That's an incredible first step. I mean, for a lot of people, that's a 722nd step years down the road. They're still working with, did you feel the release? When you kind of got to that point, could you physically feel that letting go? Were you able to release that? Immediately. And and I I didn't, I interestingly enough did not have a sense of resentment and maybe it's because I have been deployed and because I was a soldier, but I felt the need to really consciously acknowledge why. And, and that was a huge release. It gave me permission to accept the situation and without judgment, I just say it's still the best word. From there, though, the rest was a lot of family carrying me through. I'm not really sure. I'm really grateful for my mother, and Alex has a, a really um, a big family full of aunts. And, <laughs> and someone always had Ellie. That first month, <laughs> I can't say that I was really present. I, I really, uh, they really carried me through in the sense that they, like, literally <laughs> were carrying her Um and I think having all those moms, you know, all the women around me, just holding that space for me, really just, they never even asked what I needed. They, they just did it. And it gave me the space to also just really be still and present. I felt like that was a really important second step. And I appreciate them knowing how to lean in. Oh my gosh, this is yeah. so good. Like you are, you are resilience personified. And I love what you've touched on again, this theme of resilience in relationships and these connections. We're going to take one more break and come back and have you help us break down this resilience that you, I think Mm. you showed from that moment for you to be able to say, I have to release this and then release that. That's incredible. And then for you to acknowledge that you needed to be still You needed to be present and you needed to hold space for that. I mean, that right there, you could write books about the importance of that in terms of being resilient. (laughs) And you just kind of casually mentioned it. Like, here I am, this young, brand new mom, and my husband was killed and I'm letting go of the judgment, the resentment, the rush, and I'm letting these other women help me help my baby through this. So we'll be right back and have you continue to teach us about resilience. Melissa, we always ask our guests, what is resilience? What does it look like to you? And what can you maybe teach us that you've learned through that immediate aftermath of your husband's death and then in the 15 years that have passed since then? I think I'm actually just now really refining what it was and really actually felt pretty well oriented yesterday before I'm here speaking. I really do think that at the core of it, is the relationship with yourself. 
to be able to really truly know yourself and your values, or some would say to know your soul. I do think that was the critical cornerstone that allowed me to trust myself and the process that I found unfolding within me and outside of me. Yeah, I do think it really is that relationship with yourself that's critical and trusting that, trusting yourself. Uh, You know, I always think it's a great question, you know, what really is resilient? But I had recently been thinking through this, and I do think that having courage, which they say is truly courage when it's coupled with fear, (laughs) courage is not fearlessness. It's knowing the fear and moving forward anyway. I do think that is a key aspect of knowing that we're not infallible and and accepting that, accepting that human condition of, I will make mistakes. This is scary. This is a lot. And I'd almost say it's compassionate courage. Well, I love that. Stop for a second. This is where we always talk about these cool, like one-liners that belong on t-shirts, compassionate courage. That's incredible. Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted, but that was like light bulb in my mind. I want you to tell us more about compassionate courage because that is beautiful. Definitely. For me, it's really something that's a definition that's evolved since uh, coming back from DC as I was reflecting on the trip and my experiences because I've had other loss in the military of friends. And the compassionate courage to me really does begin, or it is maybe synonymous with resilience, and the core of it is knowing yourself. That's what I'd really say. And having that compassion with the understanding of who you are, which takes courage to really see yourself. And I think it has an external factor also. And in the fact that no situation and no person is perfect. And um, it takes courage to really accept that. And to know, to understand maybe your shortcomings or how the situations do not work for you or what it is about the people around you or your close relationships that really are not your favorite things. I really do think that is the compassion piece is just is knowing that and holding space for that and still using that as a source of strength, which is the courage part. And so I, those all could be sources of fear, all, all of our um, valuable parts of us and nature. But uh, if we can find acceptance in that, that's truly where the courage comes from to live a full and robust life. So and, um, your, yeah. your comment and definition of courage reminds me of Brene Brown's definition of courage. She says courage, the original definition of courage when it first came into the English language is from the Latin word core, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell your story of who you are with your whole heart. And so part of that is just how you're defining it, to know who you, you are and be able to First, tell yourself. And to be able to be at at peace with the fact that no situation and no person is perfect. I love how you said that. Courage is not just being strong and um, brave in the face of nothing. Right. Courage is seeing the Mm. fear, feeling the emotions, and then choosing to take it head on rather than cowering from it. And I, 
I just admire that so much, Melissa, especially every time I remind myself how young you were. I mean, how old were you at this point? You were very young, brand new baby, new to life, new to adulthood, new to home ownership, new to the civilian world. I mean, that is a lot to process and still have that soul integrity to say, I'm going to live with courage Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be compassionate with myself and let other people help me and and carry this baby for me. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I was curious. How old were you? 24. That oh, is so young. So young. That's so young. Yeah, it was really young. So uh, I mean, when I met you, it was when, hard. I mean, I've, when yeah. I met you at the Pentagon, I thought you were still so young. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's, <laughs> you're making me feel old. But I love what you've shared with us today. I agree with you that that trip to the Pentagon with senior military leaders and also other survivors from around the country was definitely very thought provoking. I think it peeled back some layers for me as to where I am in my own journey. Uh, You have given me great words to think about with that compassionate courage, not only with my own soul, but, you know, your daughter, Ellie, you have a daughter almost the same age, and it sounds like similar personalities from our conversations as my daughter. And you're helping me to be courageous and having that compassion toward my children, too, and the importance of giving them space as they grieve. And you and I know that it's not like, oh, you check the box, you're done grieving because this was 15 years ago or whatever. These children grow up with this grief. And how do we help mm-hmm. them have that beautiful, compassionate courage as well? But I just, I appreciate that so much. Well, it's definitely a practice. Yeah. So thank you. I just think the next key part is just remembering that the compassion and the courage are constantly reapplied. <laughs> so it's, it's over a, and um, over and over again. Yes, it's not a one and done, that's for sure. And uh, when you you can create a practice of it, it really can be a real source of strength. So, Well, thank you. I know you've taught me a lot. I, I think I have three pages of notes here of things I've written down. And I could have taken notes the entire time I visited with you in D.C., but that would have been awkward as we just stood there talking. But thank you. <laughs> thank you for living with that compassionate yeah. courage that has to be constantly shown and reminding all of us of the importance of giving space. I, to be honest, I really appreciate the fact that you said you're kind of just now making a new layer of sense of what happened before. You're now unpacking it in a different way, given the circumstances of life. Now, we all know there isn't that one and done Mm -hmm. where you're just, oh, that was such a hard time. And the rest of my life floats by in a dream. But thank you. Thank you for that true resilience. And really, I want a T-shirt that says compassionate courage, because I think that is I'm going to I I will credit you, but I'm going to share that with other people. I'm going to say, hey, my new friend, Melissa, taught me about compassionate courage because, man, I think that's what we need more for ourselves and for each other. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to acknowledge your service and sacrifice and the sacrifice of Alex and you know, as we go into Memorial Day, you said in the beginning, we, we knew the risk going in. We knew what we were signing up for. But the reality is nobody mm-hmm. signs up to lose their life and nobody believes that it's going to be them. Yeah. And while they understand mm-hmm. it's a risk that they take, um, we shouldn't discount in any way that sure. service. Because of their willingness. Because oh, of their point. Very beautiful willingness. Um, and I have heard that from yeah, people yeah. In, in the civilian world. Oh, they knew world. what they signed up for. Right. Yeah. And, and it's uh, dismissive mm-hmm. of the true sacrifice and, yeah. and, and the big burden of carrying freedom for yeah. all of us. And so I just want to acknowledge no, and say thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, yeah, thank you, you. Yeah. 
Yeah, all right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. And, you know, we send you all of the love and peace possible as Memorial Day comes up. I know in our culture, we tend to say happy Thanksgiving, happy Halloween, happy Memorial Day <laughs> seems to fall a little flat. But we will wish you peace and gratitude mm-hmm. as you not only commemorate Memorial Day with the rest of America, but your family's Memorial Day of your beautiful soldier. And we are just forever grateful for that service and sacrifice and wish you and Ellie all the best. And someday if we're brave enough and have enough courage to get Megan and Ellie together, we'll see how these young girls <laughs> just start moving mountains around us in spite of us maybe. But yes. thank you. Thank we'll you, Melissa. Time to prepare for that. Yeah. Whew, <laughs> yes, thank you. That's going to take real courage. <laughs> I know. But these, these young people are great. And just to our listeners, thank you for joining yeah. us on these journeys. Um, Thank you for, for listening and having compassion as we learn together. And if you're listening with a story of your own to share, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us either on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast, or you can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. We would love to hear your story and share it and learn together with and from you. It doesn't have to be just about loss. It can no, be about true. a lot of other things too. And we know... You all have a story because none of us get out of here without one. (laughs) Or several. (laughs) Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.